0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
1: Hello, are you awake? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. We are non-profit, voluntary organization supported by members like you. If you want to officially join us, you pay twenty-five dollars to become a member, and Annalise over there is waiting for you. And uh, to begin with, uh, I would like to ask you all of you to turn off your cell phone, mobile, or any other electric. Uh, devices that make noise. We are very happy to have Dr. Gershom Baskin. According to the the, uh, Lethbridge held, announcing this event, first line says, any sane academic will not touch the subject of Middle East. It's too complicated. And uh, I think it's a good line. I have been there many times, but I never understood it. But anyway, Dr. Gershon Baskin has been at it for a long time. When I met him, uh, he was the director of Israel-Palestine Center for Research and Information. He's now a co-chair of the board of that same organization based in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, he's going to touch subject relating to whole Middle East, but particularly relating to peace process between Israel and Palestine. I don't think we should spend any more time because you can talk with him for two hours without being bored. So 30 minutes or 25 minutes is not fair for him, but anyway, it's a good opening. So Dr. Baskin, would you come over here and uh, entertain us?
0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's a great uh, pleasure to be with you in your community. It's my first time here. Um, I flew in in one of those little planes this morning um, that I'm sure you all know quite well. Um, I will get right into our subject because of the limited amount of time that we have. I want to give a setting of what it is exactly we're talking about. Jews and Arabs have been killing each other for more than 100 years in the Holy Land. There are two nations, two national movements who are fighting over the same piece of territory and have proven for more than a hundred years that they are willing to fight, they're willing to die, and they're willing to kill so that they each have a territorial expression of their identity. That's what it's about. Each side wants a piece of the land that they can call their own in which they will be sovereign, in which they will determine the nature of their state, in which they will be in control of their own destinies. The Jewish people formulated in their national movement called Zionism and the Palestinian Arabs living on the same land called the Palestinian National Movement, have for the past hundred years over and over again shown their determination to allow them to have control over their own identity. Over the years, as this conflict has developed and emerged, the international community has come in, in various formats, and made a determination that these two peoples are incapable of living together under one roof, and therefore, the only solution to the conflict is partition. It was first done during the period of the British Mandate in 1937, by the Peel Commission that recommended partitioning the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, a tiny piece of land into two states for two people. It was done once again in the newly born United Nations after World War II and the Holocaust in 1947, where once again the United Nations, the international community, came in and determined that this piece of land should be divided into two states for two people. We are still in that same position today, where the entire international community puts its investment in this area in finding an adequate solution that would partition the land into two states for two people. That's what it still is all about. Of course, what we have in reality on the ground is a situation where one state exists. One state came into existence in 1948 and the other did not. In 1947, when the United Nations voted on partition of Palestine or the land of Israel, whichever you want to call it, it's the same territory between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. In 1947, when it was partitioned by the United Nations, the split of the territory was more or less equal, about 50% For each side. Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the two holy cities, were cut out of the package and were transformed into what the United Nations proposed, a corpus separatum, a separate legal entity that would be under international control. But the rest of the land was divided into two states. Well, we know from history that the Jewish national movement, the Zionist movement, accepted the UN partition resolution, which granted them a right to a state for their for themselves, particularly after the annihilation of more than 6,000 Jews in the Holocaust in Europe, the creation of the state of Israel for the Jewish people was a mandatory necessity of survival and a moral imperative of most of the countries that voted for it because they had done so little for the Jews during the Holocaust. The Arabs of Palestine and the Arab states around Palestine rejected the resolution and declared that the international community had no right to partition the land, to give half of it away to a population that numbered less than half of the number of Arabs who were living in the territory at the time. And they decided that they would fight against the establishment of the State of Israel. Well, at the end of that war, which ended in 1949, the newborn State of Israel was not on... 50% of the land, 51% of the land that was allocated by the United Nations, it in fact had managed to conquer 78% of the land between the river and the sea. And the state of Palestine, the Arab state that was supposed to be created from the UN resolution, was not created. Instead, the newly born Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan annexed the territory that remained, the West Bank of the Jordan, what you hear... In in the newspapers, in the media, what's called the West Bank and East Jerusalem were annexed by the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. An illegal annexation, by the way. It was not recognized by the international community when the Hashemite Kingdom annexed the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Only two countries of the world recognized that annexation, the United Kingdom and Pakistan. And that remained the status quo from 1949 until 1967. In 1967, another war emerged, this time the Arab Republic of Egypt threw out the United Nations peacekeeping talks that were in the Sinai Desert, this buffer zone between Israel and Egypt, and closed the Straits of Tehran, the straits that enabled Israel to navigate its commerce to the southern part of the hemisphere. And after a three-week period of waiting while Israel was under siege, it preemptively attacked Egypt and Jordan, Egypt and Syria, sorry, on June 5th, 1967. It preemptively attacked with its air force and in the first day of what became known as the Six Days War, basically took out the military ability of Egypt and Syria to wage war with Israel. At the same time, the State of Israel sent messages through the United States to the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan to King Hussein that if you don't attack Israel, Israel will not open up a front on its eastern side with Jordan. But the young King Hussein was listening to the Arab radio stations from around the region, and on Egyptian radio he heard that the Egyptian tanks were rolling into Tel Aviv, and he made his fatal error of his life, and he bombed Jerusalem, and he bombed Tel Aviv, and Israel opened up the front to the east, and by the end of six days, Israel was in full control of all the territory between the river and the sea, the west bank of the Jordan River and East Jerusalem. It also conquered the Gaza Strip that was under Egyptian administration, the Sinai Desert that was Egyptian land, and the Golan Heights of Syria. It found itself after six days in control of all the territories on which these two people were fighting. From that period, from 1967 until 1987, Israel was in full control of these territories with a minimal amount of objection from the Palestinian people. The Palestinians were living under Israeli occupation, but experienced a wave of economic boom after 1967 war. Jobs were created, industries were developed, their economic lot lot improved greatly, resistance increased, the Palestine Liberation Organization was created a few years before, in 1964, by the Arab League, and in 1968, Yasser Arafat, the person who established the main Palestinian national movement within the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Fatah Organization, took over the PLO in 1968, and began to appear on the scene, claiming Palestinian rights to the land, and refusing to recognize Israel's right to exist. From 1948, we can say, until 1988, for 40 years, we had a situation of conflict which is best described as mutual non-recognition. The Palestinians refused to recognize the Jewish right to a state of their own, and the Jewish state refused to recognize the Palestinian people and their rights. Our famous American-born Prime Minister, Golda Meir, used to say, there is no such thing as a Palestinian people. That was the same kind of blind uh, non-recognition of the existence of a people living in the same territory as was the Palestinian non-recognition of Israel and the right of Israel to exist. But in the end of 1987, in December of 1987, a road accident took place between an Israeli army vehicle and a van carrying Palestinian workers from a refugee camp in Gaza. Four of those workers were killed. Riots broke out in the refugee camp, the Jabalia refugee camp in the Gaza Strip. A territory very densely populated, 90% of the people there are refugees who became refugees with the birth of the State of Israel in 1948. That population had been under control by the Israeli military for 20 years with almost no resistance. And then all of a sudden, after this road accident in 1987, a burst of anger flowed across the Palestinian territories and demonstrations of tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of Palestinians came out to confront the Israeli army and said, no more. This was the first Palestinian intifada. Intifada in Arabic means an uprising or a casting away. It comes from the Arabic root nafada, which means to shake off. What the Palestinian people, who for 20 years had been living under Israeli military occupation, were saying is that we don't want to live. We don't agree to live anymore under Israeli military occupation. And not only that, they were saying this Palestinian leadership of the PLO that's kept us in the refugee camps and kept us in this situation of conflict, we don't want their non-recognition of Israel anymore. We are living here under Israeli occupation. We recognize the reality. And the reality is that we no longer are claiming all of the land between the river and the sea. What we want is the land that was conquered by Israel in 1967. And with that first intifada, the first genuine Israeli-Palestinian peace process was born. It led to the Madrid conference that was convened by George Bush, the father, and Mikhail Gorbachev in his last year of rule before the Soviet Union broke apart. It later became known as the Oslo peace process, which emerged as a result of secret direct talks that took place between the Israeli government and the Palestine Liberation Organization. In 1988, in November of 1988, 40 years after the birth of the State of Israel, 40 years after the Nakba, the Palestinian catastrophe that turned them into refugees, Yasser Arafat convened a meeting of the Palestinian National Council, the PNC, their sovereign body representing Palestinians all over the world, and he read a Palestinian Declaration of Independence. <coughs> Excuse me. This was a, a fascinating step. Yasser Arafat asked Mahmoud Darwish, who was the Palestinian national poet, to draft the Palestinian Declaration of Independence. Mahmoud Darwish was a Palestinian who grew up in Israel. He studied in schools that were run by the Israeli curriculum, and as a youngster, he studied the Israeli Declaration of Independence. And when President Arafat asked him to write the Palestinian Declaration of Independence, what he did was pull out from his memory, from the computer, the Israeli Declaration of Independence. This is a brilliant document written by our first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion. What Ben-Gurion did when he drafted together with his colleagues the Israeli Declaration of Independence, he tried to give just reason why the establishment of the State of Israel was legitimate. The document begins with the connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. It goes to the revelation of given to Abraham to go to the land of Israel and, and become a people and prosper in the land of Israel. It goes through the history of the Jewish people and their connection to the land, and the dispersion, and the, and the anti-Semitism, the suffering of the Jewish people because of remaining retaining their identity and of course, the Holocaust. And it concludes with the international legitimation granted to the establishment of the State of Israel by the UN Resolution in 1947, UN Resolution 181, which said that a Jewish state and an Arab state should be created in this land of Israel, the land of Palestine. So Mahmoud Darwish took out the Israeli Declaration of Independence and he drafted a parallel document. And he started the declaration by the connection of the Palestinian people to their land and the God-given right as they perceive it to the Palestinians to live on this land and their history of suffering because of maintaining their identity and their connection to the land and he concludes the Declaration of Independence with the UN resolution, the same UN resolution which granted the Palestinian people a right to create their state. This was a remarkable moment in history because this was essentially the moment when the two-state solution was born. And now the Palestinians were not claiming 100% of it, and not even claiming 50% of it. They said, give us 22% of the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. The Oslo peace process of 1993 signed on the White House lawn with President Clinton and President Arafat and Prime Minister Rabin was a document which laid down a path towards peace. It said that we were going to create a five-year interim period during which time Israel would begin to withdraw from territory, turn it over to the Palestinians who would establish a self-governing authority. During this period of five years the parties would develop trust between them and then as trust developed we would be able to negotiate the core issues. And the core issues were specified in that document, the Oslo Peace Process. The creation of a Palestinian state next to Israel, the delineation of borders between the two states, the future of Jerusalem, which is a holy city for Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and the national capital of the state of Israel and the Palestinian people. The issue of Palestinian refugees who became refugees after the birth of the state of Israel and their rights. Security arrangements, water, economic relations. These are the issues that need to be negotiated. As time went on in the Oslo peace process, tragedy happened. We had spoilers. We had Palestinian terrorism who killed Israelis. We had a Jewish terrorist who killed Palestinians. We had another Jewish terrorist who assassinated our Prime Minister. And rather than the parties implementing what they took upon themselves in the Oslo peace process, They breached their commitments. During the years of the Oslo peace process, the Israelis and the Palestinians signed six agreements. Six written agreements were negotiated and signed. And the parties, both sides, breached significant elements within each agreement. And therefore, rather than having a period of time which enabled the parties to develop trust so that they could negotiate the hard stuff, the core issues, they created mistrust between them, not even zero trust. When Israelis and Palestinians came to the negotiating table, it wasn't that they didn't trust each other, they believed in fact that the other side had no intention of implementing whatever they said they would, and that they would in fact do exactly the opposite. And when we got to the table to negotiate the core issues in Camp David in July of 2000, This summit of the leaders was a disaster. Ehud Barak, our prime minister, who demanded a summit of the leaders under President Clinton to negotiate permanent peace during the two weeks of Camp David, refused to sit with Yasser Arafat. Two weeks of Camp David, they didn't even sit together, the two leaders. And the offer that was made by the Israelis to the Palestinians fell short of the minimum Palestinian demands, and they rejected it. And continued to negotiate, but by this time in 2000, violence broke out again. And this time, the Palestinian officials and negotiators and security officials were involved in the violence against the Israelis. And the trust that, the minimum trust that existed at that point, disappeared as terrorist bombers blew themselves up in Israeli towns and villages and cities and cinemas and restaurants and the Israelis retaliated with reconquering the occupied territories. And during this period of 2000 to 2005, 7,000 people were killed during a period which was supposed to be peace. And here we are again, at it once again, not the first time. The parties are negotiating again. Secretary Kerry, with a determination a persistence, A creativity and initiative that we haven't seen by any former American Secretary of State is back at the table. He managed to bring the parties back to the table. He understood that when they were sitting in the same room that they were not making progress and he moved into negotiations where he and his team were shuttling back and forth between the parties and they're trying now to hammer out a framework agreement that will give enough substance to all these core issues So that by the end of April, the deadline that was given by Secretary Kerry, he gave a nine-month period, a figurative period of time, enough to give birth to a new baby. By the end of April, the parties are supposed to agree on a document, a framework agreement, that will have enough substance in it that will enable them to continue negotiations till the end of 2014. Here's the good news. The good news is that a majority of Israelis and a majority of Palestinians are ready for peace. Between 60 and 70% of Israelis and Palestinians consistently say that we want peace. And when we ask them in in in-depth research, we describe what the peace looks like, which I'll do in a moment. We more or less know what an agreement looks like after negotiations of 20 years. A majority between 60 to 70% of Israelis and Palestinians say yes to the agreement. The tragedy is, at the same time, the Israeli and Palestinian people, in more or less the same numbers, between 60 and 70 percent, say it's not possible. And why do they say it's not possible? They say it's not possible because while we want peace, we have no partner for peace on the other side. And this both sides says about the other side, and they're not crazy. The news that they see every day gives substance to the claim that there's no partner for peace. Every day, Palestinians wake up and hear news of Israel building more settlements on territories which they claim to be theirs and believe will be the future Palestinian state, and they don't understand it. If Israel is building settlements, how can they want peace? And every day, the Israelis wake up and hear Palestinian incitement to violence and hatred against Israel, and they wake up to Palestinian attempts of terrorism continuing against Israel. And just over the last two days, more than 70 rockets fired from the Gaza Strip, ruled by Hamas, a party which doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist. So every day these people come back with this message that we want peace, we have no partner. The really good news is, and all the good news all has big question marks behind it as well, that we are in a situation today where the two parties for the first time in the history of negotiations have no, what's called a batna. Professor Roger Fisher, the guru of negotiation theory from Harvard University who wrote the famous book Getting to Yes, came up with this concept called batna, a best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And Professor Fisher had claimed that parties make agreements only when they no longer have a batna. Today, Israel and Palestine have no good alternative to a negotiated agreement. Every scenario of failure in these negotiations today is bad for Israel and is bad for the Palestinians. There is no good scenario for either side today other than a negotiated agreement. And the other good news is that we have two leaders who are probably, as strange as this may seem, the two best people in the world to make this deal. Prime Minister Netanyahu is the leader of the right wing in Israel. If he makes a deal with the Palestinians, he brings more than 70% of Israeli public with him. Almost any other leader in Israel to make the kind of deal with the Palestinians that we need will divide Israeli society in a way that could produce even a civil war. Netanyahu unifies Israeli society behind him with the support of the military in making peace with the Palestinians. Mahmoud Abbas, the president of Palestine, the president of the Palestinian Authority, is the last of the founding fathers of the Palestinian National Movement. And with that title and with that history, brings along with him the legitimacy to make the ultimate concessions that Palestinians need to make in order for there to be peace with Israel. So what does it look like? And with this, I'll conclude. A two-state solution along the lines of the 1967 borders with agreed-upon territorial swaps. You know that there are 500,000 plus Israelis living over the lines that Israel conquered in 1967. By international law, those settlements are illegal. Every single one of those Israelis living over the territories the borders that Israel conquered in 1967 are illegal by international law, but the Palestinians recognize that they can't undo history, they can't turn back the clock, and they can't move more than half a million people out of their homes. So they have agreed to the principle of equal territorial swaps. The maximum territory that Israel could afford to swap, uninhabited um, land adjacent to the borders that would become the state of Palestine, is about equivalent to 4% of the West Bank. Four percent would enable enable Israel to incorporate between seventy five and eighty percent of the Israeli sov- settlers inside of Israel on Israeli sovereignty without having to move their home. That takes a big, big uh, problem out of the negotiating table. Seventy five to eighty percent of the settlers will remain where they are without having to move under Israeli sovereignty. Jerusalem will be the capitals of both states. Jerusalem is the most segregated city in the world. There are no common spaces in Jerusalem. Jews and Arabs do not live together in Jerusalem. They live in separate neighborhoods. That enables us to adopt what President Clinton said in his parameters, what's Jewish to Israel, what's Arab to the Palestinians, meaning that places in Jerusalem where Israelis live will be under Israeli sovereignty. Places where Palestinians live will be under Palestinian sovereignty. It must be an open city. A city without walls, without fences. The only walls in Jerusalem should remain the Ottoman walls built around the old city of Jerusalem. The old city of Jerusalem is less than one square kilometer. It's perhaps the most sensitive one square kilometer in the world. There are four quarters, a Jewish quarter, a Christian quarter, an Armenian quarter, and a Muslim quarter. We could adopt the Clinton parameters inside the old city walls where the Jewish quarter would be under Israeli sovereignty and the other three quarters are under Palestinian sovereignty or, you should know, the University of Windsor in Canada developed a Jerusalem Old City project, a brilliant project where they brought in Israeli experts and Palestinian experts and international experts and created a model for the Old City of Jerusalem that more or less is likened to a condominium where a professional management company will run the Old City of Jerusalem on behalf of its residents. Not the internationalization of the city, not turning the city to the UN. The city belongs to its people, but it would be run by an international management company. The heart of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount, the place that we believe was the place of the first temple and the second temple, and we believe Jews, when the Messiah comes, the place where the third temple will be established. For Muslims, it's a holy territory as well. We both believe that our common father Abraham brought his sons there to be sacrificed. We, the Jews, believe it was Isaac they believe it was Ishmael. From that place the prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven to receive the revelation of the Quran. This territory is holy for us all. It has to be respected in its holiness and we can grant sovereignty to God and we can freeze the status quo where the Muslims pray on top of the mount and we pray down below at the western wall which was the outer wall of the temple, the place that Jews go to to pray today because we believe that the temple mount itself is too sacred for Jews to go and pray at. So our rabbis say don't. And this is the ultimate fudge clause for us. Because we can say that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah doesn't like the arrangements we made, the Messiah can change it. For the time being, the status quo, the the political control, the Muslims on top and the Jews below can remain. And lastly, the Palestinian refugees. A sad story, but the overwhelming majority of Palestinian refugees will have to go to their own state and not to their original homes in the state of Israel because they don't exist anymore. They can't go back to places that don't exist anymore. They should all be eligible to claim property rights, to get financial compensation, and they should be allowed to settle in their own state forever. And that will make a two-state solution for two people viable and real. And this is all doable, and it's unfolding before our eyes. And we'll know the outcome very, very soon. This is not a distant dream. If this peace process that Secretary Kerry is running produces the results, we will see a process unfolding and everyone should understand that the easy part is reaching the agreement. The hard part begins the day after. To translate peace, a piece of paper, into peace between people is the hard part. And that's really what we have to work at. Thank you very much.